Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. It's always interesting to note in the narrative of Genesis, or really any other book for that matter, when God is not even mentioned in a text. That happens from time to time. Why is that? Where is He? He's present in the text as He always is. He just isn't being mentioned by name, which... There's something instructive for us uh, in that, because it will often feel like He isn't there with us either. God normally doesn't appear to us or make Himself known to us visibly. We normally see His hand by looking back and noticing how often He was with us. And so what I want to do tonight is set the tone for the story of Joseph, which will, for the most part, dominate the rest of Genesis by reading the end here at the beginning to set the story in its proper context. At the end of this story, Joseph will say this to his brothers from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Which means, in everything that's about to take place, there are two wills at work the whole time. The will of Joseph's envious brothers, which will manifest itself in hatred and jealousy and abuse. And at the same time, in those same things, the will of a sovereign God, which manifests itself in salvation for Joseph and countless more. The point is this. Even in the midst of evil, the sovereign purpose of God is what will stand. We talked about this this morning. God will always When nothing, nothing could be more important for us to know when we start to consider the reliability of our salvation tonight. Throughout history, Christians have faced uh, persecution, martyrdom, torture, theft, imprisonment. Many do today, even as we speak in the world. And we don't know yet what our future holds here in America, but suffering as the result of evil against us, tends to raise questions. It does throughout Scripture. It does in our lives. Again, the same questions. Where is God? Is He absent? Does He not see? Does He care? It's one thing. Normally we don't, um, unless you know the burden is really heavy, we don't question the existence of God nearly as much as we question the concern of God for us. Where God is. What is He doing How often did the nation of Israel suffer evil at the hands of others? Their story is basically one of suffering from beginning to end, it seems. This was the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. And beloved, this is the story of all God's people eventually in a world where they don't belong but must travel through. What we need for our faith is the ongoing awareness of the fact that this is how our God has chosen to work out our salvation. This is the way it is. What we expect helps us when we begin to go through things. Any theology then, any view of God that forces us to deny that God is sovereign in and over evil will keep us from embracing Everything that we see in God's Word. There are parts of it we'll have to throw away or ignore. And we never want to be that kind of believer. 
God used the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to begin fulfilling his plan of salvation. This is the way our God, um, this is the way of our God, which means while evil may be hard to understand or explain, at the very least, the existence of evil does not mean, cannot mean, that God doesn't care, or even more, that God isn't present. No circumstance or situation means God is not there. In fact, the darkness may be proof of the light. We are meant to find comfort in the fact that God can use evil human deeds, even ordain them, to fulfill His plan of salvation. This is the plan of the God of promise. Our hope is that God is sovereign even in evil, not just in spite of it. It's a very different thing. Remember this as you live, because the fact that God's ways cannot always be understood does not mean they are unreliable. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask God that you would open our hearts to understand what is happening in this passage. The huge truth it's revealing, Father, give us the ability by your Holy Spirit to grasp it and to believe it and to understand why it's so important for us. And so, Lord, for your name and for your people, open our hearts to receive your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 2 of Genesis 37. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So the story begins when Joseph, Jacob's son by Rachel, is 17 years old. He's an apprentice shepherd, and he's a little tattletale. That's what we're learning about Joseph. That's the first thing we find out about him. In fact... The wording here means that Joseph probably exaggerated whatever it was that his brothers had done, whatever it was, in his bad report to their father. The Hebrew word dibba, that word alone, bad report, means a report that is slanted to damage the victim. Fake news, right? That's what it is. This word is always used elsewhere in Scripture in a negative sense when talking of a false report. So at the outset of this story, we're reminded that the patterns in the family are continuing their strife within <clears throat> Joseph is if we're being honest right it depends on the picture that's been painted for him for you through all your years in church and all our years in Sunday school and all those things but he's being presented at the outset of the story as immature he's unlikable nobody likes a snitch nobody no Carmine from the time he was two years old has had a t-shirt that said snitches get stitches we just want to remind him don't tattle we don't like it so there's strife here. He exaggerates their flaws. At the beginning of the story, Joseph is a fool. That will change. That will change immensely. But what deepens this issue is that his father is foolish also. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob is the son of, or Joseph, sorry, is the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. After Jacob had ten sons with other wives, Joseph was finally born to the lovely Rachel. So Jacob loved him more, acted on his favoritism by making him a coat of many colors, which is honestly better translated a robe of long sleeves. This is probably a very dressy coat in that culture, distinguished from everyone's normal robes by its extra length and sleeves or extra long sleeves. It was a symbol of 
love and favor. The only other time we see this wording in the Old Testament is to describe the robe of Princess Tamar, which means it probably had some royal overtones to it as well. In other words, Jacob is publicly stating with this gift that didn't come to any of the other brothers that Joseph is the ruler of the family, more or less, with this gift. Nothing would be worse for an arrogant young tattletale to receive than a coat that made it obvious that he was special. And it seems like Joseph wore it all the time. Pick it up in verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So that means they refused to even greet him or wish him shalom, which was common. To refuse to greet someone in this culture, to wish them peace, was a sign that they were ostracized. They didn't belong. They weren't wanted. Joseph's brothers hated him. And it will get Worse, in verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. By the time we get to Genesis 37, what do we know about dreams? What has happened so far? What is their narrator telling us here? That God might be at work, because this is what we've seen with dreams. And these dreams of Joseph will govern everything that follows in this story. Think about that, though. Think about The idea of dreams. The dreams in Genesis show us that God has complete sovereign control of people and the events that happen on the earth. He tells people ahead of time what is going to happen and what he's able to bring about then by his will and by his power. This is what is going to happen, period. God's will of decree is set. Right? When, when God has permissive will, do not murder, people might still murder. When God says this shall be, it will be. Right? It's, it's, it's irrevocable. Dreams in Genesis were one of the ways God revealed what he was going to do. And in the story of Joseph, if you'll notice, all the dreams in this story come in pairs. They come in twos. Joseph's dreams, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, Pharaoh's two dreams, And Joseph will even tell Pharaoh why later on the dreams come in pairs. One dream could just be a dream, right? It could just be a one-off, have no real meaning. But in Genesis 41-32, Joseph actually reveals that when they come in twos, in the context of Genesis, it means God has declared something and will bring it about. So we know, I read the end at the beginning from Genesis 50, but we know the sovereignty of God then is driving everything that's going to happen in this story. Don't forget that because that means God is sovereign even when evil is happening and being carried out. Few things are more important for God's children to know in this world, beloved. Now, when Joseph was young, again, he was foolish. He's 17. We can't, don't hear me criticizing him too harshly. He's a teenage boy. Why would you tell this to your brothers who hate you? Why would you tell them that you had this dream? Look at 6 and 7. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Oh, please tell us, Joseph. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Not only is he bragging, but he's doing so, keep this in mind, while wearing a robe that symbolizes his father's desire that he would be the one to rule the family. The brothers are not amused, right? Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? 
Or are you indeed to rule over us? Two of these brothers had had killed an entire city full of men. And this 17-year-old boy is telling them, I'm going to rule over you. And at least those two are like, sure. Sure you are. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. But Joseph won't take the hint. He has a second dream, similar to the first one. And he not only tells it to his brothers, he tells it to his dad. In verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves to the ground before you? Jacob is making it, or I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. The meaning of that dream is clear, isn't it? Back in verse 9, the son is Father Jacob. The moon would be his stepmother Leah since Rachel had died. And who could the 11 stars be since there's 11 brothers? The whole family will bow down to Joseph is what these dreams are saying. But this time even Jacob rebukes him in verse 10. Joseph is talking too much. He isn't just at odds with his brothers, but now with his father also. In verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. You never know in in, in Jacob's world. You never know when it comes to dreams. If anyone knew that, it was Jacob. Jacob had met the Lord himself in a dream back in chapter 28. Jacob certainly um, knew about how the Lord could declare a plan and bring it to pass. The elders shall serve the younger. That happened, 25, 23. He had experienced this. And Joseph has had two dreams. So Jacob is probably thinking better to wait and kind of, Keep this rather than dismiss it. But his brothers, they want nothing to do with him other than the fact of their growing hatred for him, which is mentioned three times, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. And they're also growing jealous of him in verse 5 and verse 8. And that, in this context, that seems to be even more passionate than their hatred. We'll see elsewhere in Scripture that jealousy like this turns violent, as it will here. So the stage is being set for a major confrontation verse 12 now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near shechem and israel said to joseph are not your brothers pasturing the flock at shechem come i will send you to them and he said to him here i am jacob is making it worse you talk about preferential treatment joseph doesn't even have to go with them to pasture the flocks apparently benjamin did Little Benjamin, but Joseph doesn't even have to go. He doesn't have to work. What would make brothers hate one brother more than anything? We have to do the work. You get to stay home. Shechem was about 50 miles north of the Hebron Valley. And especially for these brothers, remember, a very dangerous place. This is where they had avenged Dinah, killed all the males, plundered the city, made Jacob public enemy number one. So we know why Jacob would be concerned about their well-being. We pick it up in verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Well, the brothers can't even speak to Joseph. So why is Jacob sending Joseph to check on them? What will happen to Joseph? That far from home. He goes on the journey, but he can't find his brothers. In verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, 
where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. That's fortuitous. Luckily, in the, 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 the desolate places of this region, this man has overheard the brothers say they were going to Dothan. It's another 14 miles north. So Joseph has there also Dothan, or Dothan, if you remember, is where Elisha would later be surrounded by an army from Aram in 2 Kings 6, 14 through 17. But tell his servant, don't be afraid. There are more with us than there are with them. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Joseph doesn't get that kind of protection. He, he doesn't have the tangible assurance of God's presence. All he knows is that he's supposed to find his brother, so he makes the journey. Again, what's going to happen to him? Now, this is where in the story the perspective changes to that of his brothers. We're brought near, if you will, to the brother's camp so that we can overhear their conversation. Pick it up in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now, how did they know it was him? Probably that swanky robe that he had on that they could see from very far away. That's enough to make their blood boil. In verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. They hate him. And if they kill him, they kill his dreams too, right? You'll, we'll never bow down to him if he's dead, right? This is what they're thinking. But then the eldest thankfully intervenes, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Listen, again, it's, it's not nice, but it's better than killing him, right? Throw him into the pit that he might rest, do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So as the oldest, really, Reuben knows that he's responsible for what happens to Joseph. He knows then they can't murder him. They can't take his life. Remember, shed blood cries out to God from the ground. God would require a reckoning. Reuben wants to put Joseph in a difficult situation, but one where he could save him and then restore him to Jacob, be the hero. Maybe Reuben is, remember what Reuben had done with Bilhah, Jacob's other wife, so maybe Jacob, maybe Reuben is like, I, I can use this to get back in my father's good graces after the affair with her in chapter 35. But fortunately for Joseph, either way, the brothers listened to Reuben. So in verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Notice that before they throw him into the pit, they rip the robe off of it, right? They want to kill any notion that he will be the next ruler of the family. Again, they're trying to kill his dreams. But from whom did these dreams come, beloved? They mean evil. God means the same thing for good. That's important. That's important. God isn't pictured in Genesis as coming in after the fact and making things magically come together. That's not sovereignty. Right? That's hindsight. God is in it from the beginning. Don't miss that. He's in it 
from the beginning. They mean evil in throwing him down into the pit. God means it for good. Try to believe that, though, laying at the bottom of a pit after being assaulted by your own family, your own brothers. Try to, try to picture yourself in that situation with theology, belief about God, and, and trying to feel good and hopeful and faithful. Everything feels different in the pit right, than it does sitting in here tonight or in the normal course of life. So the pit was empty in verse 24. There was no water in it. So Joseph just happened to be thrown into a pit where there wasn't a cistern used to collect water. That's, that worked out for him. Well, so he didn't drown. It's almost like someone very powerful is watching over for him. He had a guy, found a guy in a field, just a guy in a field that knew where his brothers were going. Here he's thrown into a pit, but not one that has water in it, so he's not going to drown. But he's still a prisoner of his hostile brothers. He can't escape. He can't get out. He's trapped. The walls are apparently too steep for him to just climb out. And now in the story, Joseph is silent. We don't see him saying anything for the rest of the chapter. Later in 42.21, though, what's interesting is the brothers talk about how Joseph had pleaded with them. The narrator leaves that out here. He doesn't even put that in here. I think he wants to show us something about Joseph. Joseph is changing, or at least how he's going to be presented is changing. He suffers in silence when he suffers at the hands of his kin. Just like Abel, when his brother Cain killed him, just like Jesus, when his own kinsmen had him crucified. This is so important that it's in the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus was Silent during this. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What is the significance of mentioning that detail? Because you're suffering. What do you do when you suffer? You cry out. You rail against the heavens. You scream like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And Jesus hadn't been a foolish young man that bragged and Tattled. He, he was completely righteous without sin. If anybody had the right to speak up in suffering and say this isn't fair, it isn't right, it was Jesus. And he says nothing. He suffered through his trial in silence. He, he didn't answer the high priest. He made no further reply to Pilate. Right? This comes out of the gospel. He gave King Herod no answer. I love the way that's portrayed, by the way, in the Passion of the Christ, when they bring Jesus before Herod, and Herod is so disrespectful and goofy, and Jesus says nothing. A pattern is developing in Scripture, beloved. Joseph's suffering in silence is preparing us for the silent suffering of Jesus. Why? Because this is how we may suffer if our God is sovereign. Joseph can't escape. He's stuck in the pit. His brothers sit down to eat as if nothing has happened. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. The, the caravan route from Gilead passed off into Egypt was part of the way between Damascus and the coastal road to the south where all these types of things would be traded with Egypt. This gives Judah... An idea, another brother, pick it up in 26. 
Then Judas said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers. Listen to him. If they kill him, they'll have to conceal his blood, they'll have to hide it. It's murder. They know basically that can't be done. It's too big of a risk. And at the end of the day, of the day, this is their brother. There is some of that going on. So Judah comes up with a win-win for everybody, except Joseph. Sell him instead of kill him, and we'll get rid of him without any guilt. If he happens to get killed in Egypt as a slave or on the way, well, we didn't have anything to do with that. But we'll just, he'll die as a slave in Egypt instead, not by our hand directly. The brothers like this tangled web. And in verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The narrator uses the name Joseph twice in verse 28. Do you see that? As though we don't know who he's talking about. He's reminding us that this is Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. This is the one that's supposed to rule the family that all this is happening to. How could this happen to Joseph? The beloved son on the way to Egypt to become a slave, traded like property, what will become of him? The present never looks like the future. Certainly doesn't look like this is God's plan, that this evil thing done by his brothers is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan that Joseph will become a ruler in Egypt, and that his brothers will indeed bow down to him. Do you think when Joseph had those dreams that he thought that was the route to get there? The Bible will have more to say eventually about sons that are left for dead by the evil deeds of others and become rulers. Well, apparently Reuben was elsewhere when this actually happened. If you look in verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Reuben thinks that he's dead, tears his clothes, he's extremely sorrowful. What will he tell Jacob? But these are sons of Jacob. Deceit runs in their blood. In verse 31, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe. Or not. They go back to the first plan, right? Say that a wild animal killed him. So they slaughter a goat, dip his robe in the blood, bring it to Jacob. We found this. It looks like Joseph's. Is it? Jacob's sons try to deceive their older father with their brother's robe and goat's blood, just as Jacob had used his brother's garments earlier to deceive his blind father, Isaac, back in chapter 27. Will they get away with it? Will it work? Can you trick the trickster in verse 33, and he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Je- Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. It's, it's, it's so sultry. I mean, picture in your mind doing this to your dad. Right? I mean, try, try to... Just get it in your mind what it would take to do that, to lay that burden on your own dad. If if you can think of him or picture him, what would it take for you to be willing to do that? What would it take for you to be that underhanded and lie like that and let him believe it and stay with it 
after having done that literally to your own brother. I mean, how much hatred and jealousy is there? This isn't like, I'm not going to talk to you for two or three days because of what you said to me. This is, we were going to kill you. We don't really want to pay that price. So we're going to sell you to Ishmaelite traders who will take you down to Egypt. We will never see you again. We hate you. Give us that robe. We're going to dip it in blood and tear it and tell our dad that you were killed by an animal and stick with it and let him believe it. We're going to rid you from our lives. Why do we keep wondering how people are capable of horrible things? Of course they are. Of course they are. What's amazing is that things like this don't happen more often. Like, how do people not kill each other? Well, well because you don't want to go to jail. When, when that fear goes away, murder happens. Or when you convince yourself you can get away with it, who knows what people will do? This is humanity. If God isn't sovereign, how can the good, how can the bad ever be turned into good? How can the end ever be better than what you had to go through to get there? If God is just at our mercy and he would never violate our will or, or take over and just do what he wants to do. If he's not like that, what are we going to do? Because in the end, the majority will be against him. Free will will be dead set against God. What do you want God to do then? You want him to be sovereign then, don't you? You want him to say, no, 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 I'm in charge, not you. My will is what will be done. We want him on the throne. Was Spurgeon or Kuiper that said, we want God everywhere, but on his throne. We'll let him be anywhere, but on his throne, ruling with the audacity of sovereignty. But if he's not sovereign, what can you do in the face of this kind of evil? We tend to just make these stories almost, you know, like fantasy. Like, no, 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 this happened. This happened. We're only privy to little parts of the conversations. They hated Joseph. They hated him. My sister and I laugh now at how mean and awful we were to each other. My sister's four years younger than me. We said things to each other. That now we just die laughing that we ever even could conjure it up. That we were so mean and horrible to each other at times. And now we're, we get along greatly. But hatred, jealousy, these things run deep. Especially when you're young, when you're... But this, that they, they deceive him. They trick him. Just as he had done before. And in 34... Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob mourned for many days. His heart is broken. His beloved son is dead. Joseph was the future. Right? You, if, if you're Jacob, you don't want Reuben to be the future. Right, he, he he had slept with Bilhah. You don't want him to be the future, and and Jacob is not stupid. There's a difference between stupidity and foolishness. Right, Jacob has grown up with these or, or watched these boys grow up. There's a reason, probably, not just that he's born because Benjamin came from Rachel also, but Jacob has probably learned over time that this is where the hope for the family is. 
Right? I'm sure there's a reason to some degree for his favoritism. All of that is gone now. All Jacob has experienced in his life are reasons to think God actually isn't going to keep his promise, even after it seems to be going very well. He goes into mourning. He says, I'm going to mourn until I die. And then I'll go to Sheol where the dead reside. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Right? Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph is still alive. Right? He's in Egypt. And he's become the slave of not just any Egyptian, but the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So he's close to the palace where the ruler is. It's, it's, again, it's almost like someone very powerful is watching out for this young man. And his suffering isn't over. It will increase. He'll go through all kinds of things. He'll, he'll be falsely accused and imprisoned. We'll read about that. But these are the very things that will lead to his exaltation to the highest position in Pharaoh's palace to the degree that we have to admit if these things didn't happen, then God's will doesn't happen, right? What we know is going to happen doesn't happen unless all this evil takes place. And yes, beloved, his brothers are going to come and bow down to him. That will happen. His dreams will come true. The hatred and jealousy of his brothers and his enslavement are the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan. And it involves more than just the eventual submission of his brothers for Joseph. As a ruler of Egypt, he will be instrumental in saving his father's life and the life of his extended family from death by a famine, an entire nation. As he will say later in 45, 7 and 8, this is amazing. This, is, this isn't a throwaway phrase by somebody that doesn't know God, or I'm, again, remember, there's no Bible in this time. There's God working through one family, keeping his name in humanity. So this family knows everything there is knowable at this point in human history about God. This family knows it. And Joseph says, later to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's a true statement. See, what do you mean? We just read that they sent him there. No, no, no. God is sovereign here. God is sovereign. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Again, that's, that's not making lemonade out of lemons. It's theology. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. So we need to go one step further which is very hard because it begins to grate at our logic and our philosophical understanding, but the Word of God is not revocable. You can't just toss it out when it doesn't make sense. You don't want to do that. You want your picture of God to be as fully orbed and accurate as it possibly can be. What we're finding is that God not only uses or allows, we saw this in Job, but ordains the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers as the means of fulfilling his plan to make Joseph a ruler. So how is God not evil? Well, because the Bible says he's not. Full stop. Right? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make any sense. Right? Eventually, we fall off the cliff of what is understandable. That's what we have 
to reckon with. The evil deeds of Joseph's brothers are the means of fulfilling God's plan to make Joseph a ruler. The God who rules in sovereign power over the evil intentions and plans of his brothers overrules those evil plans and intentions to accomplish his plan for Joseph. Which, beloved, you and I are here today because of that victory and all the others that came after it. This is ultimately the means by which God will preserve Israel. And from them will come the Messiah of the whole world. And if Joseph isn't preserved and the family isn't preserved, all through the evil deeds and intentions of his brothers, there is no Messiah. Israel celebrated this story from their history. In Psalm 105, 16 through 22, listen to the psalmist write about it. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So, just so we're clear, it was God who sent Joseph to Egypt. And God also sent for a famine, because he's sovereign. And if he wants the food to run out and the crops to go bad, and there to be no livestock and no produce, guess what? That's what happens. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, God is the subject of those verbs. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders Wisdom, Psalm 105, 16 through 22. Joseph's story then became what? It became a reminder to Israel that God is sovereign in evil and guides his people in covenant faithfulness through all of these things and will never leave them or forsake them. So often throughout our history, Israel wondered where God was. Again, was he sleeping? Did he care anymore? Joseph's story... Joseph's story gave them comfort that no matter how dark or bleak the night, God was in control. And again, not just magically after the fact, making it all, you know, work out, but in what was happening, even the evil. He has the power and ability to overrule evil people, break their intentions so that what they want does not come to pass and what he wants does come to pass. This is the source. God is showing you how he's going to work out salvation through the murder of his own son, his own son. This is good news. And so that's what we're saying. We are meant to find comfort in the fact for our souls that God can use and ordains evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation. I know that's hard to wrap our head around. Don't trust me. Read the Bible. You will see it page after page after page. God does not hide himself from responsibility or culpability. We try to do it for him because we get embarrassed about God being sovereign. God is not embarrassed about the fact that he's sovereign. Who are we to answer back to him? What are we thinking That we would pull God down and say, you can't be like that. You can't do that. That's not just. That's not good. Do you see the garden? Do you hear it? We know what's right. Why were we not, why was it not given to us to know the difference 
or to, or to try to work out for ourselves what was right and wrong because we're horrible at it. We murder Jesus for blasphemy. That's how we view God. We have a picture of him we created and we are so in love with it that we worship it. And then he comes along and breaks the mold, busts the box apart. And we say, you're unjust, you're wrong. We're crazy. Crazy without Christ. Crazy. Because, beloved, one greater than Joseph is here. Acts 4, beginning in 24. And when they heard it, the beleaguered church, Peter in prison, John in prison. It's all starting. Is this what our lives are going to be like now that we follow this Jesus? Where was the comfort for the church when their two preachers were in prison and they didn't know what was going to happen next? Are they going to come for us next? So when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. All that evil... All that evil and rebellion. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Do you hear that cacophony of the nations against God to murder Jesus? An evil, A more evil deed has never been perpetrated by humanity than the murder of the Son of God. And guess what? Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. It's Jesus against the world to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All that evil ordained by God to take place. All of it. Every bit of it. And don't think for one minute that you had a bunch of robots trying to resist, but just couldn't do it. No, no, no. They hated Jesus. They hated him. The rulers of Israel, I think, in some sense, knew that he was the truth. And that's why Jesus tells that parable. When they saw the son coming, they said, we'll kill him. You remember that? Beloved, it's right here. Jesus knew his Old Testament. Right? He, 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 that's exactly what they did. When they saw the son of the master coming, we'll kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. It's right here. The theme that runs through the book of Genesis reaches its climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is how sovereign God is. Thousands of years took place between Genesis and the murder of Jesus. How sovereign, again, we talked about it this morning, how sovereign do you think God has to be to get everybody where they need to be for everything he wanted to happen to occur? God's ultimate plan of salvation for the world was carried out by his enemies and accomplished through the murder of his son, the true Israel, the obedient son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Without evil, we would not understand the sovereignty of our God or the certainty tonight of our salvation. It's not that, that's not an attempt to explain evil away or make it easy to understand. Or make it seem as though just smile and laugh through it because it's not really real. It is real and it hurts and it's awful to suffer from evil. Right? Joseph was not 
you know, not really learning a lesson. He was literally in a pit. Literally, I mean, imagine the 11 brothers assaulting him to rip his robe off and get him in there. That happened. He went with the Ishmaelites. We have no idea what that was like. He goes into slavery. And this is the favored son. Right? This is not how it's supposed to go. This is, so what I'm saying here about God orchestrating and ordaining and working and using, it, it, it's an observation for our souls that even evil is a tool in the hand of God to accomplish His purpose. Nothing exists that isn't God's servant. The question is whether it wants to be God's servant. Right? Not whether or not it is. Everything is. Everything belongs to Him. Everything. Every cell. Every atom. Beloved, when that begins to grate at our logic and our rationale and all these things, ask yourself, what would be the alternative? How would you want it to be? Right? What's harder to deal with? A God who is sovereign, that's worthy of worship, and that's just the way it is, or a God who isn't technically in charge of everything? Right? Again, as hard as it can be to wrap our head around what feels contradictory and difficult, I, I'm not making light of that. I understand. I, that's very, it's very hard to reconcile all these things. But I heard a friend say one time, no, no, don't, you don't reconcile friends. Right? These, these truths that exist together about God are not enemies that we have to reconcile. The, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. What that means is, okay, so sometimes I read things I just am not capable of understanding. Or at least not yet. Not right now. But never is it that, well, God can't be what he is in Genesis 38 because of what he says in, in Leviticus 10. No, 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 no. That's never the case. Ever. I don't know how to make sense of all the theology. I, I, I don't. I, I just know that God is not evil. And that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. That's what I do know, because I see it. Beloved, there is comfort for us even in the midst of evil. There is comfort for us even in the midst of trials and suffering. And it's not that God is going to show up at the end. It's that God is in it with me now. The Bible is built on this fact because God's children are always in danger. Always. But evil deeds aren't something God has to somehow corral and twist into something good. If that were the case, again, it may never be true that what God brings about is better than what we had to go through to get to it. Right? If God's behind the whole thing, then I'm okay. Doesn't remove anyone's culpability. Doesn't remove anyone's responsibility. Right? This is when it gets hard to understand. But it is the truth Our comfort comes from the fact that the whole time God is working out his plan, not just at the end. There's nothing in the universe that's more powerful than he is. There's nothing that exists or could be created that could undo the sovereignty by which God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. God is involved the whole time in what we go through to make sure That's the case for you and I. God is not evil. God doesn't do evil. It's impossible. 
What we're learning is that God is always sovereign and always ruling and his will is always what will be done. Through his suffering and eventual ascension to a place of rulership in Egypt, Joseph saved God's people, Israel. When you hear that, you can see it, can't you? You can see the pattern. Through his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus saved God's people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, the church. You can see the parallels. You see them. See the pattern. Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him. According to Matthew, Jesus' brothers, the chief priests and the elders, conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Matthew 26.4, these were kinsmen from Abraham. As Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver, so Jesus, his own disciple Judas, sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In Matthew 26.15, there's a great movie. If you have a chance to see it, it's called The Peanut Butter Falcon. It's so good. And there's a, um, a line in it by one of the actors talking to the star of the movie that says, friends are the family you choose, right? It's, it's, it's a very good line. So when Jesus told the disciples that he calls them friends, there's something about that that's even deeper than being a brother, right? You don't get a choice on who your siblings are. You do get a choice on who your friends are. Jesus was betrayed by a friend that he picked for 30 pieces of silver. You say, well, yes, Jesus is greater, so it's 30. Yeah, Jesus is greater than 10 more pieces of silver, beloved. But he was sold for 30 in Matthew 26, 15. As Joseph's brothers handed him over to Gentiles, so Jesus' brothers handed him over to Pilate, the governor. In Matthew 27, 2, as Joseph suffered in silence, so Jesus suffered in silence, Matthew 26, 63. And God used the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to save his people. So God used the evil deeds of Jesus' brothers, carried out by God's will and intention, according to Genesis 50 and Acts 4 that we read earlier, to save his people. But because Jesus is greater than Joseph, he not only became a servant and suffered humiliation and scorn, he died and rose again to save God's people. Jesus' death accomplished our atonement It didn't just save us from a famine, which is a big deal. It didn't just save us from bad stuff happening to us in our lives. It it redeemed our souls and atoned for our sins before God, the Holy Father of everything. Joseph, the one who arrived very late in the family, became the bearer of blessing and life for the others, just as Jesus arrived very late in the story in the scope of time and history, and it took so long for the promise we talked about this morning, the promise of Genesis 3.15, to be fulfilled, but it was. And evil didn't slow it down or stop it. It served it and made it happen. This is our Father's world, beloved. All of it and everything in it. There's never a rogue moment. Did you know that? When you read texts like Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every turn is from the Lord? Really? So if me and the gang play Scrabble, and I get all W's, it was God? Yeah. Somehow. 
Again, all the philosophical difficulties aside, what if the universe isn't that way? And how does the Bible describe things? Well, with verses like I just said, the king's heart is like water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. What if the king doesn't want that? doesn't matter if the king doesn't want that. There's never a rogue moment. Ever. There isn't even a rogue Adam. Again, this is what Job learned the very hard way. Right? And again, God is not capricious. He's not Zeus. You know, he's not... That's the thing. Buffet the doctrine of God's sovereignty with the doctrine of God's grace and it, it will be okay. Right? There are just things that are hard to understand about him. And that shouldn't surprise us. I think we expect for everything to be okay and, and welcoming and then we'll believe and then our faith will grow. I don't know that God can be grasped by human hands like that. I just, I'd rather sit and have those difficult conversations with my kids than to believe something false about him. And then when the bottom drops out, not know what to do. I mean, that's, we're long here, but that, that's what, that's what happened to me. That's early in the, when I first went to college, 1993, I, I had a certain view of God and what God was like. And then in a, in a course of events with my family and things that happened to us and because of us and, and, Everything ripped out, and I thought I was going to take my own life. It, I, I, it was that difficult for me to, to try to grasp. I thought for sure I had God figured out, and I had no idea who he was, just none whatsoever. It took evil for me to understand that. And again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 27 years removed from that. I was 18. right? I, when I look back on it, I, I make it sound very spiritual. It wasn't at the time. Right, I, I think I see that when I look back on it now. But to understand again that, that God is always in absolute control. Again, I want to stress to you, God is not evil. God doesn't do evil. God has no evil in him. He's God. What court calls him evil and is correct? Right? He, he just is. And he always has been. He was first. You and I came later. The rules were already set. Right, when he created us, nothing changed about him. So it's, it's, it's a matter of us coming to rest in usually the difficult things we see in his word. Because the alternative is not as great as it sounds. That he's not sovereign. It, you start following that rabbit trail, it gets really ugly. You could have stopped that and you didn't. What's easier to deal with? You could have stopped that and you didn't because you're not in control. Or, okay, you have a purpose here, I just don't understand, but I know you... I can trust you. The Bible teaches one way, we come up with another. But this is how it works, and what is always at work for you and I, beloved. The sovereignty of a God who is full of grace and love and mercy and salvation for the people that have rebelled against Him. And still do every day. You remember that. And remember that, again, just because God's ways can't be understood do not, does not make His promises unreliable. Our salvation is certain tonight because our God is sovereign even over evil. 
Not just in it, but over it. So that it has to and must serve His purpose ultimately rather than its own. So as you read God's Word, as you come to know these stories, remember that each one is proof of who God is and what God can and will do. Because every certain word of His sovereignty, when God says things like, has disaster come upon a city and the Lord has not done it? When you read things like that, take that to the shouts and wills of your salvation. That you will obtain everything he said you're going to obtain. Because that's the one speaking it. He laid out a pattern for his people to read so that we would find comfort in the midst of the world in which we live. Comfort that comes from the certainty of God's word over against every other word, beloved. That's what Joseph would come to learn. That's what God is telling us through his word. We rest in him. We trust him. And we're safe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. God, I pray that as we maybe try to wrestle with what we've heard, that we'll go to your word and trust it and believe it. Teach us that you are who you are. And you love us. And your love cannot be stopped or overturned. And so, Father, teach us what it means to trust in you. Our theology doesn't have to be perfect because you are. And your word over us stands. And so, Father, watch over us. Help us. Teach us the way. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.